0: Welcome to Farscape Friday episode 9. We'll be discussing the Farscape episode DNA Mad Scientist. I'm Kay here with my co-host Taz. Hello, let's get started. Welcome back. Here's a quick summary of DNA Mad Scientist. The Moya crew works with a famous scientist who claims that with a DNA sample, he can pinpoint the exact location of their home planet. When he demands Pilot's arm in exchange for the data crystal, Dargo, Zan, and Rigel eagerly give him what he wants, despite Aaron, John, and Pilot's hesitation. Meanwhile, Aaron becomes a science experiment as she quickly turns into a Pilot Sebastian hybrid.
1: So this episode is often a turning point for many first-time viewers at Farscape because it shows just how far the show will go. It's pretty dark in a lot of places, and we have Zan, Dargo, and Rigel all turning on each other here, and there's, there's no convenient science-fictiony mind-altering substance or alien pollen excuse for why. It's just them. And this single question strips them down to this raw selfishness that they all show that is just all them, and it's how far will they go to get home? So first it's letting our villain and genetic experimenter Namtar, who is this really giant, tall, kind of ugly looking dude with backwards knees, which really bothered me for some reason. I don't know. The knees just, they were going in the wrong direction.
0: I I want to talk about that just quickly so we don't forget. But yeah, I was trying to figure out since Namtar essentially is building himself to be the perfect being. I'm wondering if there is some moving benefit to having backward knees like would it make you technically faster? I'm thinking of like horses cuz they yeah, they maybe. resembled like goat legs or you know horse legs.
1: That that could be true, definitely. Okay. Visually it just really bothered me cuz it's so pronounced. Like mm-hmm. horse legs you they're still more or less straight, you know. Mm-hmm. They're just hinging differently. But this this is like one of those recurved chairs almost. That's the balance is all all different, even though it's like perfectly structurally sound, it just looks mm-hmm. so wrong. So this is Namtar. Namtar is this genetic experimenter. What he needs from them in order to find their homes is fluid from their eyes, uh, which has DNA on it. And he sticks needles in their eyes, and that's how it opens, and it's so gross. Eyes. Mm-hmm. Why? <laughs> I, just, uh, I can't yeah. stand people touching eyes. Anyway, mm-hmm. uh, my squicks aside, he samples their eyes. And he's going to use this to put information on a crystal that they can take with them that has maps back to Delvia and Hyneria and the Luxon homeworld. The price for this map, though, is Pilot's arm. He wants Pilot's entire arm, which is currently attached to his body, which the three of them chop off with no remorse whatsoever. In this really painful to watch scene because as you can probably imagine pilot is not cool with them chopping off his arm and he is completely defenseless to them
0: yeah and i actually want to play just a, a short snippet of that scene just so that we can understand kind of how far and the different explanations they all give themselves
2: please i implore you just listen, listen and watch. Something that we cannot obtain anywhere else. Think about somebody else for a change. I will help ease your pain. No, I don't go. No!
0: So in that clip, you hear this interesting interplay where Zan is trying to do something we've seen her do before, where she's like, oh, I'll take your pain. Clearly, Pilot's issue is not the pain. His issue is that he likes having his arm. And it's. And I think what makes it just more disturbing is that here we have Zan, a character that really has formed a close relationship with Pilot, a close relationship with Moya, and yet she is so willing. She's almost eager to to do this, to sacrifice this at the chance of going home.
1: Mm-hmm. And with Zan in particular, I'm not sure we could have had the storyline from her without having had her, her crisis of identity in the last episode we watched that old black magic where mm-hmm. she has to embrace the savage side of her that she has repressed for so long or, or moved beyond for so long. But that, that viciousness in her is very much in play in this entire episode. Zan has like some of the coldest body language throughout the whole plot line here where she and Dargo are scheming and plotting against Rigel. They're holding down pilot and they're taking his arm. They're all conniving against each other. She's backstabbing Dargo to try and get on Rigel's good side. And, and she is, she's just cold. And there's mm-hmm. nothing like the Zan we've seen in the first, even up to episode eight um, for much of that episode, mm-hmm. she is not the calm, collected priest who values all life that's still there, but it's been subsumed by her her cold practicality. About I want to get home. I'm going to do anything to do it, and she just goes to this really, really dark place that I don't think you would have gotten without without her character arc in the previous episode.
0: Yeah, Zan in this whole episode is not only the most cold, but she's also the most conniving. She's at a level of Rigel. In fact, to to be honest, she's beyond Rigel at this point. Because Rigel spends this whole episode, as soon as he sees the crystal, he takes it and he hides it to give himself the power. Because the premise is that the crystal has so much data that they can only download one map and destroy the other two. So now the three of them each want their home world, each want to go home. And only one of them can. And then the assumption is that once one gets home, they'll be able the others will be able to figure out how to get home, but everybody is so obsessed with going home first. So Dargo eventually ends up after Rigel, you know, steals the map, Dargo locks him in his quarters, and then we have a lot of really uncomfortable Zan moments. I'm gonna play one where she and Dargo agree agree that they have to be a united front against Rigel.
2: Hynerians are extremely devious beings. I don't doubt for an instant that Rigel has that crystal so well hidden, we will never find it on our own. If only I could lay my hands on him. You would do what?
3: Whatever it takes to secure that crystal.
2: We are forced to face the truth. Rigel has been a very useful ally in the past, but now
0: he is enemy.
2: Agreed. You and I must remain strong no matter what it takes and unified
0: unequivocally. And in that quote, there's this weird implication where you're not quite sure what Xan is implying, because it almost sounds like she is telling Dargo that they would they should be willing to, you know, murder Rigel in order to get this crystal. And it's it is really dark and it is something we wouldn't have had without that old black magic.
1: Yeah, so we have this opposition of Zan and Dargo teaming up against Rigel. And it's funny, Rigel is completely in character here. Like, nothing in his behavior is different from how he has behaved through all the episodes leading up to this. He's selfish. He wants to be first. He's going to steal the uh, crystal. He's going to steal the crystal and hide it in his quarters so he has it. He, you know, rebuffs any attempts at getting it by first Dargo, then Zan. And Zan even, like basically tries to seduce him and it's really kind of funny scene also with Zan being still very cold and calculating and you can tell that's you know it's an act for her and you know Rigel lets her stroke his ear brows for a minute but then he like immediately shakes himself out of it as soon as uh, as soon as Zan goes in for what she wants which is you know the crystal Mm -hmm. he is still this very pragmatic thinking for himself thinking ahead character that we've seen so far and honestly, he's like the one I'm whose side I'm on for this little exchange because mm-hmm. the others are bullying him and trying to get what they want in such this kind of repulsive fashion. Because it's so it's not Zan anyway. We'll get to Dargo in a second, who I think is more in character. But actually, I'm I'm on D- Rigel's side for this little conflict, which mm-hmm. I don't often find myself in these sorts of situations.
0: Yeah, because especially when you look at what he did, but then. It's hard to be on anybody's side but his when you have Zan, yeah, sexually manipulating him, Dargo threatening to starve him to death in order to get the crystal. And I, I even want to take it a step back because before they even, when they find out what's going on with the crystal, there's this really interesting interplay between the three of them. And I'm just going to play it so that we can, we can kind of hear, and this is before the stakes even get higher.
2: To have spoken without consulting me what am i chopped millet
0: of course not
2: i can stomach chopped millet blue ass bitch what did you call me a blue ass bitch oh!
0: you can hear there in that clip that this tension isn't even because rigel has now taken what they want and now they're stretched out even thinner it's this tension existed before that when at the idea of going home. And I kind of want to talk about that for a moment because we're so focused on John going home because he's our, you know, primary point of view character and because he's the one that, you know, wants to return to Earth. And fundamentally, we all identify with that emotion. But here, the realization in this episode is that the rest of them also very painfully and very emotionally want to go home. Which
1: makes a lot of sense for them because they've been prisoners locked up. I mean, it's been at least 130 cycles since Rigel has been to Hyneria. zan has been locked up, if not as long, at least, you know, a substantial amount of time. And as we know, Darga's been out for eight years. Mm-hmm. And so John's been lost for, you know, months at this point, maybe. And the rest of them has been cycles and cycles and cycles. It's practically a lifetime or part of a lifetime that they've been gone.
0: And what's interesting to me here, though, is that I guess because they've been on the run from Christ for so long that I've never really stopped to think about whether the rest of them would be welcomed at home. Because you assume that, say, for example, you know, somebody that went to prison shows up in your neighborhood, they would probably get caught and then taken back to prison. But here, you do kind of have to wonder would the peacekeepers go back and catch them again? Because clearly, I, I think we're... I mean, we're supposed to understand that at least Hyneria is still under peacekeeper, if not peacekeeper boot, at least peacekeeper control a little bit, right? They have
1: a puppet king.
0: <laughs> yeah, they have a puppet. <laughs> <laughs> That's a yeah, good Which one. is actually
1: one of the points that Dargo brings up when he's trying to convince Rigel to give up the crystals. Like, you know, your cousin still has the army. You're going to need Lux and warriors to take your throne back. Of course... Dargo we don't know how much power he has he says he does have power to get warriors together Mm -hmm. but you know he's been a prisoner too so it's kind of this they're not thinking it all the way through they're just so focused on just getting
0: back and then we'll solve all the problems later. The way that their plot line ends is that after Dargo puts Rigel in in his cell Zan finally realizes that the only way to truly manipulate the situation is to and we're never quite clear what's going on, whether or not she actually plans to give Rigel what he wants of letting him go home first, or whether she and Darga just are going to wait until Rigel has the crystal out and then they'll steal it from him. It's it's never really clear, but eventually <laughs> Rigel locks them back in the cell that they have locked him in. I love that. <laughs> yeah. Let's play. I just want to play the tail end because it's so Rigel.
1: Yeah, it's, it's Rigel being smarter than everyone in the room. It's great.
3: didn't hear all you were offering I'm afraid but then I guess it's a moot point anyway isn't it how did you get out you really think that I could spend all those cycles locked in one of these cells and not have a secret means of sneaking in and out as I please now if you'll excuse
2: me I have a little trip planning to do
0: right wait! again we get this this idea of the history between not necessarily between the three of them but we get this idea of the history that each of them have where Rigel has been locked up for so long that he had a way in and out of his cell without anybody noticing and later on when you have Zan and Dargo trying to like stab their way out again with like like Aaron we're like what are you gonna do with that (laughs) well they're picking the lock Yeah, but I'm like, why don't the peacekeepers build better cells? What cell has a lock inside the cell?
1: Well, that's but that's also another point, though, to to look at the world building of this, because Leviathans are not meant to be prison ships. I mean, they're their own creatures. That's why the locks are funny. Mm -hmm. Sure, the peacekeepers probably could have done something extra to secure them, and they probably did, but you're going to have these structural imperfections because that wasn't her original design. You know, Mm -hmm. she's her own creature. She was as much a prisoner as anybody.
0: Mm -hmm. That's a good point. So... Just their dynamic, I think you're right about this being the not only the darkest episode we've seen so far, but it is an episode that really truly reveals the gritty underbelly of these characters. And this is, again, something that doesn't really go away. We discussed in the last episode how Zan, we're going to have to deal with Zan's darkness for a while, and this is part of it.
1: Yeah. And there's a serious breach of trust that happens, too, with Pilot. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk about him for a minute because Pilot is stuck in the den. He is defenseless, and they cut off his arm. And he has this attitude about it that when John comes to him later is saying, aren't you angry? Why are you not angry about this? And I'm going to play this clip right here where Pilate explains. You let them
3: cut off one of your arms. I didn't exactly let them. They have the opportunity to go home. The drive is very strong. I will never understand you people. How can you not be angry? insanely angry when one of my species is bonded to a leviathan we give our lives to the service of others ship first then those who travel aboard her no matter what those aboard do to you my species is incapable of space flight on our own if we wish to journey beyond our home planet this is the trade-off we make for the chance to see the galaxy i consider it Perfectly equitable arrangement.
1: So Pilate's attitude here is that that he is a servant, he serves others, that is his role, and that is the price he has to pay for being aboard a Leviathan and going to see the galaxies and the stars and everything. But I have to wonder, like, how much of this this is, one, justification because that is a way he can cope with being kind of helpless in the face of his passengers, And also how much of it is a leftover attitude from when he worked for the peacekeepers? Because as we learn later, Pilate always was on Moya when the peacekeepers were on Moya. Mm -hmm. And so this is his first freedom he's ever had from being a servant to the peacekeepers who had total control and were ruthless probably about it all. I mean, they had the control collar. He and Moya were, he and Moya were forced to be a prison transport against their will. And so how much of his attitude is also left over of being a captive for so long, you mm-hmm. know? And that's something I think is hard to tease apart here because mm-hmm. Pilate is such a gentle and peaceful creature at heart. And yet he has been in these really awful conditions for so long, or at least these awful psychological conditions of being of being a prisoner. Mm-hmm. And so how much of his acceptance of that? Because he is angry.
0: Yeah, he is angry. I'm going to play another... I'm going to play another short clip where you hear this is after pilot and and pilot and john have had their conversation and it's just really quick and it's when they've figured out that the crystal is essentially worthless and, and they can only have one map out of three moya isn't
2: pilot how are you the yachts
3: with pleasantries what do you mean moya isn't assimilating the data is that her doing or yours i have nothing to do with it
2: pilot is right. The data is being processed directly by Moya, but there is too much.
3: There is a great deal of data, but Moya will just have to... Moya can do nothing about it. It appears your crystal is useless. Lucky for you, you didn't trade anything of real value to get it.
2: We can access one of the maps,
0: but only if we destroy the other two. So there you heard him kind of doing a little bit of talk back of, you know, well, at least it wasn't something too valuable. I think you're right about it being a little bit about his experience with the peacekeepers, because I'm sure the peacekeepers take and take and take and take. And again, they don't really see him or Moya as they they don't really see them as anything more than just pack labor, you know, anything more. They're beasts of burden. Yeah, beasts of burden. That's a good way to put it. So. It's just interesting to me that he does have that kind of little bit of you know that little bit of of talk back. And yeah. and what's also interesting though is that literally the rest of them don't even seem to notice. They flat out are just kind of like they there's right. no guilt there. There's no guilt there. They're just kind of like oh well, you know, like
1: yeah, oh, well, we cut well, off we, your we arm, we do it again. Yeah. Yeah. And then they just completely go back to their, their conversation about, and they're infighting about who gets to go back first. Mm
0: -hmm. The thing with pilot and his arm is that it's viscerally painful because technically he has four arms Mm -hmm. and they've taken one and you're just, it's just, it's gross and uncomfortable. And,
1: and he's yelling against them the whole time.
0: Yeah. This is not something that he is choosing to do. I don't it's a very uncomfortable scene. It's a very uncomfortable scene and it's a very interesting character note for the rest of them because mm-hmm. it reminds us that these aren't these people aren't, weren't in prison for not doing anything. These right. people weren't they, they weren't in, they weren't in prison just for, you know, political reasons, let's say.
1: Yeah. Zans even told us several times she was a savage and an anarchist and that's why she was in prison. Mm -hmm. And Dargo's stated reason is that he murdered his commanding officer. I mean, these are extreme acts of violence. And even, kind of getting back to Dargo's note for a second, he reads to me exactly like I would expect him to play out here, Mm -hmm. as, you know, sacrificing other species who are lesser than him, you know, bullying Rigel. He's acting just the way he acted in the first several episodes here. Completely, what I would say, in character for him when he has a goal, He's going to accomplish it. He's going to do it the most direct, violent way possible in order to get what he wants. I -hmm. mean, yes, he has to talk a little bit here. And that's where Zan's coming in to bring him around to try and convince him. But, you know, he's prepared to go to the mat for the the crystal, especially Mm -hmm. with Rigel.
0: Yeah, I think you're right about Dargo being the most in character. And it does make me wonder if this had happened before that old black magic, would it have gone down differently? If Zan hadn't been so enraptured at the idea, or if she hadn't been in a darker place to begin with, and if she hadn't been so enraptured by the crystal, I don't know, would it would it have gone differently? I think the actual
1: acts, like I think Dargo and Rigel would still have chopped off Pilate's arm, and there wouldn't have been anything Zan could have done to stop it. She would have talked, she would have... She would have resisted verbally, but I don't think she would have done anything physically to stop it. Hmm. She might have even helped with Pilot's pain the way she does here, but she wouldn't have been part of it. it but I do think that she would have had like the silent acceptance mm-hmm. because she wants to go home too. I don't think that just because her darker impulses are coming out here, that fact has changed. I think she still desperately wants to go back to Delvia too. And so I think she would have put the blame on Dargo and Rigel and said, I couldn't stop them, but she still would have felt the benefits and acted for the benefits of getting the mats.
0: Mm -hmm. And there's this interesting moment that I'm going to play between after they've delivered Pilot's arm to Namtar and they are coming back on the ship and Aaron is literally just standing there and watching them. I'm going to play it really quickly.
3: something to say to us
0: the decision was a
2: hard one Aaron. our actions even harder but it is done how could you pilot is defenseless
3: compassion
2: from a peacekeeper for a comrade you attacked one of your own would you do the same to the rest of us of course Well, you have your maps now. What makes you think you can just take this ship wherever you want to go? These maps are precisely what we've been longing for. Our way home. Pilot will not help you after what you have done to him. Pilot is a servicer. You'll get over it. I'll see to it. I know what is troubling you, my dear. You'll never find your way home. But please do not deny ourselves. Our chance to find our
0: own. What interests me about this this whole interplay is that there's kind of two strains of things going on here. Erin does miss home. Erin is wishing she had a home to go back to the way that the rest of them do. But I think what Zan does is incredibly manipulative. Because Erin just fundamentally feels a little bit injured at what at the extreme that they have taken to go home. And she, I think better than almost anyone at this point, understands that pilot is helpless.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That pilot is he he literally can't escape. They took somebody that is trapped where he is. And yeah, I guess maybe he could have shut the doors to his chamber, but he had no idea what they were going to do. So they took somebody that was helpless right. and they took something from him that he didn't agree to give and then Zan kind of turns it around and tries to make it seem like Aaron is being selfish here when I don't I don't think that that's why she confronted them
1: no well okay I'm gonna have a little spoiler note here for a later episode I'm not gonna spoil it too badly or but I just want to kind of hold that image of Aaron knowing exactly how helpless Pilot is Mm because there's an echo of that and how she knows that in a later episode. And I think is now that you've mentioned it, it's kind of just giving me the heebie-jeebies.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it is, and it's... And that's all I'm going to say about that. Spoiler alert. Yeah, yeah, I know, right? But it note. is a good echo. We'll have to come back to that. <laughs> I think that that's what, that's what was so weird for me about this scene, is because there are two things going on, of, like, the pilot thing being one thing, and Aaron wanting to go home being another. But the because of the way that Zan intertwines them, it kind of creates. It allows Zan to pretend that Aaron isn't emotionally right, that, Amer- yeah. that Aaron doesn't ac- isn't actually right on what the moral thing to do is, and it allows even Dargo to kind of be like, you know, I don't care. He's not really a comrade, you know, I don't really care. Even though I think that Dargo does understand that Pilate is a comrade.
1: Yeah. Yeah, well, we see that with Dargo's apology at the end. I mean, it's not Zan that apologizes to Pilot; it's Dargo specifically that we get to see in that. Even though he says, "I would do it again," Mm
0: -hmm. and I
1: hope you understand my motivations, which Pilot (laughs) Pilot understands. But Dargo's (laughs) the one who comes back and and with his musical instrument that he's finally finished making and plays for Pilot. As a way to say, I'm really sorry that we are at odds over this thing.
0: I think you read right about it, a lot of justification going on in this episode, especially from from Dargo, and and Rigel. I think that the two of them see it more as like a, well, this is something we had to do thing. And I think that with Zan, yeah, I I still it just it feels upsetting coming from her. Yeah,
1: it's hard to get a read on how Zan's looking on it because she's gone through this identity crisis. And I think looking back on it, you know, she's kind of going through a justification justification process too. It's just so different from what we've seen from her before that it's hard to get a handle on.
0: Yeah. Aaron and Pilot really do connect again in this episode. We have this scene later after Aaron has been given Pilot's DNA without her consent, let's point out. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Well, maybe we can talk about that part of the storyline first. So while while this is happening, Erin is confronting the fact that she can't go home. We talked about this a little bit already. She cannot go home because her home is peacekeeper territory and it's where they are all trying to avoid. And she will be killed if she goes back there. And And so she is really struggling with the fact that everyone else has this chance and she doesn't and even john so even though john doesn't have the maps because he is not recognized in the data space humans aren't recognized he still wants to go home to earth and still has that expectation that someday if he finds it he'll go and so aaron is facing this idea that they're all abandoning her Mm -hmm. and she's going to be alone and alone for like the first time in her life and there's there's a scene i wanted to play where she she tells john the enormity of it
2: aaron What's the matter? They are going home.
3: And someday, you will too. Yeah, sure. (laughs) If I ever find a way home, yeah.
2: I was born a peacekeeper soldier. I've always been one among many. Member of a division, a platoon, a unit, a team. i've never been on my own john never been alone ever when i find a way home if (laughs) if i find a way home I'll, i'll take you with me me on a planet full of billions of you
1: here even though john offers for her to come with him she still cannot even fathom that idea because humans are still so foreign to her and John is still in many ways, you know, they're becoming friends, but they're not quite there yet where she feels like she can accept this offer or wants to accept his offer. So she goes back down to Namtar and says, I want you to find me a Sabatian colony. And he does the eye jabby thing, which is totally gross. But instead of finding her a place, he injects her with Pilate's DNA that he Mm -hmm. took from the arm because he has decided that now she is going to be the experiment that he is going to grow pilotness on so that he can then graft it onto himself.
0: What's interesting about that moment is I think that Aaron deciding to find a salvation colony kind of comes at at the end of an imagined future that she and John play out a little bit where they talk about, okay, so we take everybody else home and then it's just you and me. And then eventually you will find your way home and I will be left alone. And it's kind of this imagined future that you can because of how much potential it has because in this episode we're like oh yeah then the rest of them are going to go home um you really feel play out and her intense loneliness it kind of does call back a little bit to that borg analogy we were making in the last episode where even though you know submissions aren't hive mind the way aaron grew up she never grew up apart from anybody it's kind of like that whole stormtrooper thing that's going on with Finn in the new Force Awakens movie, where this, she's literally a, someone that has not existed on her own before. I mean, I'm sure she's made her own decisions in her life, but she's never really had to because she's always been given commands. She's always been part of a set.
1: And part of a structure that has a direction for her to follow
0: hmm exactly it's an interesting alternate universe that they kind of spin out you know verbally
1: and it terrifies erin i mean that's why she goes down and asks to find it
0: mm-hmm. find
1: a sebation homeworld or sebation colony yeah And it terrifies erin and that's why she goes down to ask for namtar for a sebation colony she can go to
0: mm-hmm. so Aaron starts becoming pilot and i'm gonna play the clip when she reveals to pilot what's going on nominal
3: i will be fine There is clearly something wrong. May I ask what? It's the DRDs. DRDs?
2: Where? Everywhere, over this entire ship. But it's not just the DRDs, it's the ship's power generator, the hydraulic fluids. You hear all that? Not so much hear it, as sense it. But how? It's not so much the noises as my own thoughts it's it's like they're all
3: happening at the same time
0: and this is the first real hint that we've gotten that pilot's consciousness is that significantly different than the rest of theirs because aaron when she begins becoming pilot mind she hears everything going on on this massive ship and that connection again comes back you know of her and pilot communicating i think on a very on a very honest level
1: yeah she is beginning to understand how he thinks what his relationship with Moya is like there's a sense of kinship mm-hmm. between them that starts to develop here where she gets to basically live a little bit in his shoes mm-hmm. that'll also come back later <laughs> <laughs> but But just having this sense of what he is like and his connection, and I think that just deepens the bond that the two of them have already started to build mm-hmm. with their you know working together and and they're working through science together. And so this is just another one of those bonding things that they have now where this time, you know, Erin is, is deeply afraid of what's happening to her. And you, you heard that in the clip where she says to John, when he comes in, I'm scared.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's
1: terrifying because if you haven't seen the episode, she's got a pilot arm growing out of her side. And that, that's terrifying. You have this body transformation mm-hmm. happening, which is another classic science fiction trope that she's going through right now.
0: Oh yeah. It's very body horror. It's very, very body horror. And what we find out about Namtar is, and this goes back to my thing from, I think, like, what, from the episode with, like, the little bugs that were taking DNA samples. I'm like, no good has ever come of letting (laughs) someone take your DNA. Never. (laughs) If you're in a science fiction TV show, FYI, do not give away your DNA.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's, the, that's definitely the theme that runs through the last half of this episode is genetic experimentation is bad.
0: <laughs> yeah, so Namtar, it turns out, has been experimenting, not just on himself and on random strange creatures, but it turns out that he was once the experiment, and that once he grew smart enough, he actually took over this science base and experimented on all of the scientists. It's It's interesting because the earlier in the episode, you were in this kind of bar cantina place and it felt very Star Wars, the original. So they're in this bar cantina place. And then you find out that originally everybody was the same species and that it is essentially only because of Namtar's experiments that everybody looks different from each other.
1: Right. And they all look completely different now.
0: So then in the end, of course, they end up defeating namtar with the help of the original lead scientist and i i have to admit that yes as somebody who just likes stories i i really wish we found out what happened to her after because it's kind of like they defeat namtar and then it yeah. flashes to the ship and we kind of have no we have no fallout denouement yeah that's the yeah. word
1: no kind of what happens afterwards to her mm-hmm. or, or at least with her so Aaron's going through this this bodily transformation, and at first it's just small things growing off of her. But then she actually has, God, the costuming is amazing. But she actually is a pilot. Like her face is turning blue and scaly, and she's got that kind of leathery skin that that pilot has. And she's getting those his clamshell kind of ridges that are growing out of her forehead, and it's kind of grotesque. And then she's hiding in this closet, and she doesn't want to come out in the light. And John is the one who puts pieces together and comes after her. Well. The others are completely ignorant of what's going on down here. This is John and Aaron. And so he's the one who comes in and works out the plan with Cortana, I think is the... Cornada. Cornada. Okay. Cornada, yeah. So he works out the plan with Cornada. And, you know, it's the classic line of, you know, she's not the monster here. Namtar is the monster, whose name, by the way, spelled backwards, says Ratman. Fun fact. Really? Yeah. Namtar. Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. So it's this classic, you know, reversal of... Of the monster trope, again, you know, it's like Frankenstein, who is the real monster in the story, Mm -hmm. you know, Nantar tries to defend himself by saying, Oh, it's evolution. I'm just accelerating the process towards perfection. And I just want to point out, because this is a science nerd in me, that evolution has nothing to do with pinnacles or perfection or (laughs) humans are not the epitome of evolution. It doesn't work like that. It's like this big giant bush and everything is just going out in all these different directions because that's what works to survive. It has nothing Mm -hmm. to do with, you know, it has nothing to do with perfection. So sorry, little science yeah. thing moment there. And John, he is distracting Namtar throughout this whole thing because Cornada is mixing up the magic, magic serum that'll turn him back into a lab rat. And he brings up, you know, genetic experimentation on earth and really hammering home that, you know, genetic experimentation is bad as, as we learn here.
0: Yeah. I mean, this episode is really good about very early on introducing that because pretty much the second thing we see of Namtar is after the crew has all left after giving him their genetic material, he and Coronada go into this room and there's like this screaming being on a- w- chained to a wall, and it's yeah, really, really gross. So the it, episode yeah. is really good about not really equivocating on this idea of experimenting on on conscious beings is not a it's not a good thing,
1: not at all. yeah,' So that's one of the main points on on white shirt Watch. John is wearing a gray shirt, which I'm wondering, is this the same gray shirt he was kind of wearing underneath something earlier? Or is this something he pulled from the Peacekeeper stores? I don't know. He has a gray shirt. I'm not sure where it came
0: from. Yeah, because I'm like, Peacekeepers pretty much exclusively wear black. Yeah. You know what I mean? I think, yeah. wait, which, what color shirt was Jelena wearing?
1: She was wearing, they wear like white undershirts sometimes. I think she was wearing white. And Erin's wearing white here too.
0: Yeah, I love Erin's outfit in this episode. We've gotten,
1: Erin oh, has a new wardrobe and I think she sticks with this one for a little while where she's got a white shirt, it's a sleeveless and a black vest over it. She's got green pants and, a, and this is, I think, the first time she's had the pulse pistol strapped to her leg and before she's been carrying the pulse rifle around with her. and But this time she's finally found a, pul- a pulse pistol. She looks so badass,
0: but you're right about her sticking with that outfit for a while because it just does become a very sticky point for who for what her character looks like, yeah, the rest of them are pretty much just the same,
1: yeah, yeah,
0: <laughs> in fact, as a forewarning, <laughs> if you're watching for the first time, pretty much John and Aaron are the only ones that ever have outfits that change,
1: yeah, except that season <laughs> changes,
0: yeah, at season changes this it's interesting because I was thinking about Xena mm-hmm. because I was thinking how Zena essentially Gabrielle has, like, one outfit change when she goes from, like, her bard costume to, like, her Amazon costume. And that's, like, it for the entire series. Zena always wears <laughs> the same thing. Gabrielle always wears the same thing. And I was like, here, I'm like, no, there's, like, at least enough costume changes to keep us interested, you know? Right, right, yeah. Yeah, but where did the gray shirt come yeah, from?
1: Yeah, I was just wondering that because obviously the white one he was wearing when he came aboard, the black one we think came from the Peacekeeper stores, and mm-hmm. then there's this gray one. And I think we've seen it before. I'm pretty sure he was wearing it under, under something because it, it didn't look white. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I don't know where it came from. <laughs> John's All Mysterious right. Shirts.
0: John's Mysterious Shirts. Where did they come from? If we ever get, how do you say his name, Rockney. Rockney. How do you say his name? Yeah. If we ever get Rockney S. O'Bannon on the show, that will be the first question. <laughs>
1: We're never going to get Rockney on the
0: show. <laughs> being sarcastic i know he's not coming (laughs) that'd be pretty cool though right
1: yeah oh Oh, last note to end on because the the, there is a happy face at the end of the episode oh Um, john aaron's recovered from her ordeal and john makes her a plate of food cubes that are in the shape of a happy face. And she gives him this look of like, what? And he's like, what? It's a happy face? It's super cute.
0: <laughs> it's adorable. And also, I, okay, I want to end on that note. So we're going to come back to the happy face because adorable. But there is this moment earlier in the episode where you realize that like Zan and Rigel and Dargo have been so consumed with their, like their crystal situation and with their, you know, descent into heart of darkness territory that they actually don't even realize what's going on with Aaron.
1: No, they don't it's a little disturbing
0: <laughs> yeah it's really disturbing it's really disturbing pilot literally has to come on the clamshell and he's like oh it's ready and the three of them are looking around like what's ready mm-hmm. um but anyway yeah getting back to the happy face food cubes oh and like the expression she gives him though is like so so much more tolerant I think fond. than we would have gotten yeah, yeah it's fond
1: it's very fond she's like oh you're you're my cute little dog over here that does silly things that I like <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not quite that patronizing, but she, I mean, they're still working on their relationship.
0: Yeah, it's adorable. It is adorable. All right. So, what would you give this episode?
1: I give this one. You know, I'll give it four and a half, five. Like, I'm still working on my scale, okay? Because I know there's better episodes that come, but this is also pretty, a pretty darn good episode. So, yeah, I'll give it a five because I think the character stuff they do here is is really well done and really good and it really does set the tone or set a new tone for some of the things going forward about Zan in particular and Aaron and Aaron and John's growing relationship and even Dargo and Rigel with Dargo recognizing that you know he crossed the line he would still cross that line um, kind of thing.
0: Yeah yeah I'll go with you on the five because it's it is such a strong episode. Pacing-wise, it's impeccable. You know, it's there's no there's no flab in this episode. Do you know what I mean? It's like yeah. everything is just really well-constructed.
1: And also, the reverberations it has for episodes down the line are pretty strong, too.
0: Yeah. I, I think the one, my one, and this isn't really an episode that supports the sort of, like, really good comedy that Farscape can do to you. But I am kind of like, it's been a couple of dark episodes in a row. So yeah, I'm kind of like, I could go for a little bit of lightheartedness. And next week we've got, they've got a secret. Yeah, they've got a secret. Uh, I have no memory of that one. So I hope it's a little bit lighter.
1: So join us next time for that episode. If you like our show, please rate us on iTunes because that's how people find us. And we will see you next time. Bye. Bye.